Today, uh, we're going to finish out Hebrews chapter 10. Now, last week, if you remember, we looked at real community. What is community? It's messy. Uh, we, we looked at how the author said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as in the manner of some. So much so as you see the day approaching, the day of God coming. And now he's going to talk about right after this, just faith that endures or enduring faith. So he's going to now make the, the connection through not only do you need to gather together in person, but you need a faith that endures. Now, some of you might be familiar with Hebrews chapter 10, the end, verse 26 to 39. Um, This is probably the first or second most difficult passage in the the Bible. So uh, if this is your first time, welcome. So glad you get to watch me sweat today. Um, This is one of the top two or three, honestly, most difficult passages, not just in Hebrews, but the Bible. Uh, This is a passage where if you study church history in the second, third, and fourth century, because of this passage— and a couple others, uh, people were so afraid of having uh, or committing a major sin after they got baptized that they would actually wait till their like deathbed. They would get baptized and they would die hopefully within that day or two in their mind. They wanted to die right after that because they're so afraid of committing a major sin that would disqualify them from being in the presence of God. And I think the enemy has used this to stir within a lot of uh, people an unhealthy and an unnecessary fear. At the same time, this is a very strong warning. At the same time, we need to hear this passage in this section, and I believe God is going to challenge everyone. Um, 2 Corinthians 13.5 is something we should all be doing or looking at. It says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to whether, you're not, to whether you are or not in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5. There's something healthy just about examining yourself. Like Psalm 139, Lord, search me, know me. There's something really good and healthy about that. But this is a section where I think it's been either abused or misused. And now today, maybe we go to the other extreme where we try to explain it away. And so I just want to do our best to look at this text as a whole in the context of the whole book of Hebrews, in the context of chapter 10. And we're going to look at a very intense warning. And really the idea is this. It was to provoke believers to have enduring faith. It was to try to stir within us to have a faith that endures. And so let's just read. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. We're going to read it, and then we'll uh, pray and, and look at it more in depth. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. It says this, For if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproach and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted, listen, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward." For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Verse 37, for yet a a little while, quoting from various passages, he says, yet a little while, and he, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul, the Lord says, has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Let's pray and just really invite the Lord to speak uh, into our time and into what he wants to say to our church this morning. Actually, let me do this. Let me ask you guys at home to put away distractions, to put away anything that might take away from what the Lord might be doing. 
And uh, I'm gonna ask that you just take 30 seconds to pray. Say, God, speak to me. I wanna invite you into my house, into, my, um, into this moment where I wanna hear from you. Give me ears to hear. So why don't you just take a few seconds to pray and ask the Lord just to, to speak. Father, we just ask that you would be present, be with us. God, we thank you for your word that you've given us. We thank you for the warnings you give us. God, we thank you that you are just loving and patient and you're, you're willing to challenge and provoke and stir up. And Jesus, I ask that we would not try to explain this away, that we would not try to um, even take this to a point where we don't understand forgiveness and grace. God, what it is you want to speak, we ask that you'd speak. We ask that be very clear as we even need more of a teaching in many ways today to understand this. And so, Lord, I just ask for everyone at home, with their friends, by themselves, with their family, Jesus, just move. Let this be a conversation that just does something within the church, God, where um, we don't want to play games with you. We don't want to mess around. We don't want to um, just kind of breeze through life and stand before you and just realize we've wasted time. Jesus, we want to live for you. We ask that you would um, stir within us this passion and hunger for you, a desire to know you and walk with you. So Lord, I just, um, I just ask that whatever it is, all the different things you want to accomplish for some encourage, for some highly, highly worn, just speak now, God, and move, we ask in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, I read of a warning sign that was near a convent or a, or a nunnery, and the warning sign said this. It says, absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Signed, Sisters of Mercy. Maybe that's how you feel about this text today, where you go, this is a heavy, heavy, heavy warning uh, from a God who is incredibly loving and gracious and merciful. I mean, hasn't Hebrews been about come boldly to the throne of grace, that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, that the veil is torn, it's rent, that we have access to God. There's no more need for a sacrifice. There's no need to go back to the temple. There's no need for any of that because Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. And so maybe you're reading this section now and you're going, but this seems to, I don't understand how these things coexist with each other. It seems like a heavy warning from this God who I know is incredibly gracious and long-suffering. And, and when God decided to reveal himself to Moses, he says, look at me, I'm compassionate and merciful and long-suffering and my grace abounds to generation after generation. And how do I understand this text in light of knowing who God is? And so this is what we want to talk about today because, listen, Satan is really, really good at taking scripture and misapplying it. He's really good at knowing the Bible and using it in a way to harm believers. I mean, let's think back to the very beginning. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says, did God really say the day you eat this, you would die? So he's taking God's word and he's, he's challenging, he's, question, he's misquoting it or partial quote. You think about Jesus in the wilderness when he's being tempted by Satan for 40 days while he was fasting. And Satan is quoting Psalm 91. He goes, Jesus, if you jump, doesn't it say that the angels will guard you and keep you? And Satan even took scripture then to apply to Jesus to, to throw him off of the mission God the Father gave him. My point is, Satan is really good, I believe, at taking scriptures and applying it in our lives in such a way where it brings a fear that God didn't intend. Now, should there be a healthy fear? Absolutely. But to what we've seen throughout history, to what I've seen, and even just counseling people, people who come across these passages, and I think that many times a warning is just that invitation to, to kind of press in, to press in deeper to what the Lord has for us. And so we want to do that. And let me just um, kind of even briefly give the context to this, just so we can understand. Remember, Hebrews is written to Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they had an upbringing, a family, a history, a culture, an origin where they were very Jewish. Their laws, their practices, I mean, their beliefs, everything. And now all of a sudden they believe that Jesus, this Jew, died and rose again. He's the Messiah, the fulfilled one. But other Jews don't like that and now are persecuting these Jews. Remember, Paul in the book of Acts, actually, there is a group of Jews that got together and they took a vow and said, we will not eat food again until Paul or Saul, until this guy is dead. Like they were so upset by Saul who became Paul, this Jewish leader, became a believer in Jesus. They're like, we will do whatever it takes to stop him from spreading this message of Jesus being the Messiah. And so there's extreme persecution from fellow Jews, maybe even their family, their brothers, their sisters, to these believers. And I want you to keep in mind the full context of Hebrews. 
because it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at the first part of chapter 10. Chapter 10 was this great summary of Jesus is the final sacrifice, no more. So we need to read Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 with that in mind. Here's why I say that. We'll put up a few verses just so you can see this. Hebrews 10, verse 12, you'll see three of them. Uh, It says, when Christ had offered for all time, listen, a single sacrifice for sins. Verse uh, uh, 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What is he saying? Look at these verses. He's saying, this was the final offering. By a single offering, Christ has finished this idea of sacrifices and offerings. Why do I say that? Look at verse 26. When verse 26 says, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. The context I want us to see in Hebrews 10, he says, if we sin willfully, there's no longer a sacrifice. One thing we should consider is the context. The context is Jesus was the final sacrifice. There is no more sacrifices. That there's no need for another sacrifice because he was the final one. But you say, but it speaks of judgment. Notice how it changes in verse 26 for if we, if we sin, and this is will devour the adversaries. So there's this idea of, hey, believers, you who sin willfully, you who even make mistakes, there's no longer sacrifice. And I think the greater context is because Jesus was that final sacrifice. But for those who don't believe that and accept that, there is judgment for the adversaries. He now changes from we to them. Now, there's more to it than that. We're going to look at this, but I just wanted you to kind of get a feel of the grasp of the, of, the, of the whole text of this. But let's just walk through this now, okay? So we're going to look at three kind of big headings in this text. We're going to look at the warning, we're going to look at the reminder, and we're going to look at the encouragement. The warning, the reminder, the encouragement. Let's look at the warning, the, pa- the passage we just read and maybe stressed you out. Let's read again. Verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Welcome to church. Again, if this is your first time watching, so glad you guys are with us. Um, I really did think about coming out sick today. I'm like, I'm not feeling too good today. This, this Mike Denker needs to take this one. I, I kind of considered that. Let me actually start off by saying this. Um, God is allowed to warn us and challenge us. I think we live in a very interesting time where for some reason, if God doesn't believe everything I believe about politics, about sex, about fill in the blank, if God doesn't believe everything I believe, then he must be wrong. And I think we live in a time where we don't want to be challenged by God. That for us, when we say God is love, we maybe narrow down that scope and don't really understand what agape love is. Uh, We don't understand the beauty of unconditional love. And we don't understand that when you love someone, you love them enough to say the hard thing you love them enough to do the hard thing. Here's the idea. God is allowed to challenge us. Listen, this verse of it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me say, um, we don't ever want to downplay sin. I don't ever want to get into the trap where you downplay your sin, my sin. It's easy for us to look at someone else's sin and say, that is a heinous sin. But when it comes to my sin, that's not that bad. I mean, my sin's a little different than their sin. And it's easy for us to project other people's sins as that's really bad, mine's not as bad. I want to say, start with yourself. So I need to start with me. That God wants to speak to me. That God wants to challenge me. Um, Don't view this text as this is something always for someone else. Let the Lord challenge you. The Lord is allowed to challenge us. He's allowed to encourage us as well. He's allowed to speak life over us. I mean, we, just, we need to let God be God and let's not put limits on him and say, well, can God say this? Can God? Uh, absolutely he can. So we want to kind of start off with that mindset and say, okay, Lord, teach me. There is a very heavy warning here. Now, like any text, if you remember, if you are with us for Hebrews 6, it's a very similar passage. And I would encourage you to go back and listen because there's kind of four main thoughts around who is he speaking to and what is he talking about? 
So those two big questions kind of haunted the church for 2,000 years. Like I try to joke around, we're going to answer that right now. No, but this is a really long debate. This is a really long, uh, who is he speaking to? What is he writing about? And there is kind of four views. Some will say, these are born again believers who have lost their salvation. And maybe right away you have some like, but I have a question. There are others who say, they're as close as you can get. They're part of the church, but they're not born again. And then they've rejected Jesus and now they cannot repent. There are some who say, no, thirdly, this is like another view. This is written to Jewish believers where the temple still existed and there's a temptation to go back to sacrifices and the temple. And so once they were to go back to the sacrifices, what they are saying is Jesus, the cross was not enough. And maybe what the author is saying is you're trampling this, the, you're taking the blood of Jesus and making it a common thing and you're insulting the Holy Spirit of grace. And so the third idea is that understand the context of the Jewish believers. The fourth idea is maybe this is misunderstood in in some ways. Um, Maybe we need to understand that Jesus was the final sacrifice. So how could there be another? There no longer is a sacrifice because Jesus was the final sacrifice. But for those who don't believe that, there's judgment. I think I could almost argue all four points, right? There's some like truth where I could go, "I I could see that, I could see that. This is a very difficult text. And this is one of those things where you want to approach it lightly and humbly and say, I respect this view and this view, and we're trying to understand how we work it out in our community of faith. Let me give you one uh, definition or one explanation of this. A guy named John MacArthur, some of you know him, he said this, these were people whose hearts had been warmed toward the gospel of Christ, War- sorry, warmed toward the gospel of Christ, who made a, a superficial commitment of faith in him and had identified themselves visibly with the true church, but their enthusiasm was cooling and the cost of being a Christian was becoming too high. They were getting over the gospel and were in danger of becoming apostate. That's what he says this is the context of. He, he actually says they were close. They maybe even made a, a confession of faith, but they're not genuinely born again believers. That's his take on this. Maybe some truth to that. Uh, another guy named N.T. Wright, who's a great thinker um, for the Christian faith and Christian movement, he says something very similar. Here's what he says. He says, someone who has heard the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, and has come into fellowship with the people who hold it fast and live by it, and who then turns away and declares that's all rubbish, and he or she doesn't want anything to do with it, such a person, says Hebrews, is trampling God's son underfoot, treating the covenant as though it were meaningless and despising the spirit of God through whom comes saving grace. His take is also very similar to MacArthur's, which is they were maybe even in the community of faith, but not genuinely born again believers. And then they've rejected, they've rejected everything they, they heard, they knew, they understood, and they completely rejected it. The people spoken of here in Hebrews 10 really might fit well with the, within the parable of the sower, the second and third types of soil that Jesus spoke of. If you remember the parable of the sower, there was like four dif- there was the seed that was spread and there was four different like reactions to the, spread be- to the seed being spread. And I'm gonna read to you how Jesus interprets the, the parable of the sower, what he says about the second and third seed. It's Matthew 13, verse 20. Jesus says, but he who received the seed on the stony place this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Ever met anyone like that? They just immediately hear it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself and endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution, persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, this is the third, he says, now he received the seed among the thorns. Is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Notice the second and third response was, man, the word of God, the seed, the word of God fell on ground. It was ground mixed with stones. So it sprang up like a person might spring up with immediate joy. Like, I love Jesus, man, but there's no depth to them and immediately kind of fades away. Then he talks about, he relates that to persecution, by the way, which is what they were going through. And then he says, no, the third soil was those who, man, the cares of this world, like they sprung up, but is amongst thorns and the cares of this world choked them out. This could be, uh, the author is like speaking into those two groups of people that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13. I think that's highly possible. Most people view Hebrews 10 as just, this is the chapter that deals with apostasy, apostasy or an apostate. Maybe you've heard this term, maybe you're aware of it. I'll give you a simple definition that's mostly agreed upon. Um, Apostasy, if you can find my notes, is an intentional falling away or withdrawal of defection. An intentional falling away 
or rejection. You're intentionally, you hear the word, you understand the word, and you're intentionally walking away from it, maybe even after being committed to it to some extent, but now you're rejecting it. Some say this speaks of apostasy. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in 2 Thessalonians 2, in Matthew 24, there's this big idea that towards the end of days, there will be an apostasy. There will be uh, many apostates, many of those who reject the faith. It's possible that this is what we're seeing in the church today. It's possible that there's many people who claim the name of Jesus, but their lifestyle is nothing like Jesus's. That they might say, I believe this book, I follow I, everything Jesus said and done, I, I do believe. But when you look at them, there's no fruit or it's like a pseudo fruit. As Jesus would say, the wheat and the tares. You know, you have the wheat, which is healthy and you have tares, which looks a lot like wheat. And sometimes that you can't tell what the difference is until you realize, oh man, this one actually is producing something. This one's not. And it, the roots grow deep within tares. So you kind of, after you harvest the wheat, you have to just burn the whole field down to get rid of the tares. And there's this idea that maybe they look very similar. Maybe it's hard to tell who's truly following Jesus, who's not. Um, this is really kind of known as just that, that section on apostasy, which is very true people who willingly denied him. Now, let me be really clear, because I, I know that there's so many questions that come up. This is not someone, I believe, who's just sin or has, has been sinning. You know, obviously we're going to sin. Let's just talk about that for a second. Um, we're going to sin. Do we continue to sin with an unrepentant spirit? That's what we want to look at. But Paul does a really good job of actually speaking into this. The difference between someone who might be disobedient and they're a follower of Jesus and someone who's just genuinely an apostate. Because you might be disobedient, and I don't want to say that's acceptable. Like, there should be repentance. But then there's a person who willfully rejects, and that's what we'd call an apostate. So Paul says it this way in 2 Thess- Timothy uh, chapter 2. Listen to what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, this is a faithful saying. Now, by the way, whenever you see that, that usually means it was like a saying in the early church. Like, this was like a creed. So it's almost like, here's a creed within the early church. Ready? For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Uh, We also shall live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The thing I want to point out that most people point out is um, when you are faithless, guess what? He's still faithful. When you are disobedient or faithless, he's still going to be faithful that he just cannot deny his character. But it, it does say, conversely, when you deny him, he says he'll deny you. The deny him part seems to be speaking of that apostate. You hear the truth, you understand the truth, maybe you had a partial commitment to the truth, and then you fully reject it. He says, and I, this is a faithful saying, Paul said, this is a creed. If you deny him, he'll also deny you. But you know, if you're faithless, he's faithful. And, and it's weird, because I'm trying to make the distinction or the difference between a Christian who might sin and someone who willfully rejects Jesus. And it seems that's what the author's trying to do here. Now, let's talk through this, because I know this is um, incredibly difficult. Verse 26, where he says, if we sin willfully, like the question is, who is that? What is that referring to? Actually, a better translation in the ESV says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, the idea is it's, it's written in this ongoing tense, not just if you sin, and you sin willfully, but if you go on sinning deliberately, if there's this continual, I'm a sin, I'm, I, you're getting good at sinning. You're getting better at it. Just like when someone practices a sport, they get better at the sport. You're getting better at sin because you're practicing sin. That's your lifestyle. He might be referring to really that person who just willfully in an ongoing way, in an unrepentant way, in a, not in like this, uh, you know, Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. Not that person, but just that willful, arrogant, blatant rejection. I'm going to do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want because Jesus died for me. And they have that arrogance attached to it. They go on sinning deliberately. That maybe seems to be more of the context of the person he's talking about. Not someone who says, man, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Not the person who has that internal battle and struggle, but the person who's arrogant. It's like, yeah, I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, so I can do whatever I want. And they have that arrogant, I'm going to go on sinning willfully. That's probably more of the person who's now denying him either whether that's a theology kind of denying the finished work of the cross, the finished sacrifice of Jesus, or in lifestyle denying him. But that seems to be the person he's speaking of. Now, again, there is a belief that we're misunderstanding this. There's many who say, do we not see the greater context? Of course, there's no longer sacrifice. 
because Jesus was the final sacrifice. It says it three different times earlier in the chapter that there's one single sacrifice, there's no more sacrifice. And the author's continuing the same thought. That's what one take is they're just continuing the same thought that of course there isn't. If we, if we, of course there's no more sacrifice, but for the adversaries who have not believed that, then there is this fearful judgment. And that might be true too. There's some truth to that, I think. This is just one of those difficult texts, man, where our hearts just have to like, wrestle with it. Where I'd say, I know that maybe you're looking to me, or I, you can grab 15 commentaries and probably get three or four big ideas, and you can probably choose the one you want, but you just have to have, I think, this wrestle with the Lord. I think at the end of the day, if you're going on willfully sinning, and you have that arrogant spirit and attitude, and you're trying to say, you're trying to take the Bible and just make it what culture's saying in different ways, and like the Bible affirms this, and you're just really trying to do spiritual gymnastics to make things work, I would say you got to be careful. Um, we know that at some point, what God says and what culture says is going to contradict itself. And who wins? Do we try to change what God says, or do we just embrace it and say, God's not trying to withhold good, God is good. God's not trying to cheat me of fun or take away or steal or kill or destroy. That's Satan's job. Satan's trying to steal, kill, destroy, bring pain. God's, try, God's word, even if I might wrestle with it, not fully agree with it in that moment, God's word, I fully believe my heart is to bring me fullness of joy. That God's commands are not this burden to steal your fun, but in reality, God's commands are there so that we might experience life and life more abundantly. And I think it approaches how do we view God's word? How do we view God in this way? One author said it like this, Listen to this. He says, the sin of backsliding here in Hebrews 10 is not going back into sin, but rather turning your back on the provision for sin. If I say Jesus didn't really pay the price sufficiently, so I've got to contribute my own effort, I mock the broken body and fail to give worth to the shed blood. That's the warning here. It's very likely the warning here is don't for a second try to go back to the temple, the sacrifices, that system, because you're mocking the blood of Jesus and you're mocking the sacrifice that he gave. Do not for a second try to pay for your own salvation or act like your sacrifices could ever make you right with God or your religious works. Don't ever try to be good enough to say, I'm going to be right with God because of my doing. He goes, if you're ever going to boast in your righteousness, you're putting to shame Jesus' blood. You made it a common thing. I think that's what we need to hear today. We never want to boast in our righteousness. We never want to make it about our works. We want to boast in the finished work of the cross. We want to boast in what Jesus did for us. We want to boast in who he is, that, it is, that he is enough, that it is finished, that it is paid for, that it's done, that as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed my sins and your sins from you by your belief in Jesus, not because of your, your sacrifices, not because of what you've done. Don't trample on the blood of Jesus by trying to pay God for your works, for your salvation. Don't try to do that. He says, rest in the finished work of the cross. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, fall into the scar pierced hands of Jesus. Those are the hands we want to fall into. The finished work of Jesus, what he's done, who he is. Listen, let's get real, like real talk here. Do you, does anyone here listening, do you still sin? Do I still sin? Absolutely. Is this who the author's writing about? Let me just explain. 1 John 2, verse 1 through 2 says, if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. If anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The greater context of 1 John is, you know, don't deny that you have sin. Confess your sin. Don't pretend that there's no sin in your life. You need to confess it. And also, yes, now walk in light as he's in the light. Don't go on walking in the darkness. Walk in the light, but know that when you do sin, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he's the one we're boasting in him and his righteousness. You see, again, I don't believe, and I think how the enemy will try to use this is, we, uh, is this speaking of me? Is this speaking of us? And it's worth us asking that question because maybe you are listening and you are denying Jesus with your lifestyle. That you're li and you're not repentant. There's no humility. There's no sense of this internal battle. You're just fully giving yourself over to sin. I'd say, man, this is a warning you gotta take very serious. For the rest of us who are just going, but I wrestle with sin, the things I want to do, I don't do, understand that we got to press into, um, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I want to even go so far that if you're taken over in sin, of course you can still repent. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So if you're overtaken in a sin, you can still be restored. If a sin has overwhelmed someone's life, we all know Christians who go, man, it looks like their life is just overwhelmed by sin. They can still be restored. They're still, we're still told to seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You can still repent. You can still go to Jesus. You can still confess your sin. It's not that, oh no, there's no sacrifice for you. And I believe the enemy has used that. Like, no more, no sacrifice for you. You've deliberately sinned. If anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, if it's in this ongoing, deliberate, unrepentant way, I'd say, um, you better wake up. I would say, but keep in mind that Jesus is that finished, that final sacrifice. He, he's the one who paid it all. So there is still a very, very real warning. So in verse 29, those three things, by the way, you've trampled over. Let's read them again. Verse 29, we'll put, actually put them up here so you can kind of see it as like one, two, three. Um, the offense is threefold. Trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding um, as profane the blood of the covenant and insulting this, the spirit of grace. Insulting the spirit of grace. Just think through what he's describing there. You've got, you regarded the blood of Jesus a common thing you've insulted the spirit of grace. You know, there does seem to be a sin that's not forgiven. What is that? Jesus talked about that in Matthew 12. It's just the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? Matthew 12, 31 says this. I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. So you're saying, what is that? Let's make the connection. He says, if you've found the blood of Jesus a common thing, and you trampled over it, if you insult the spirit of grace, notice the spirit of grace, that the Holy Spirit is trying to really, is working with the world to say, you need grace. You could never save yourself. That Jesus, John 14, it talks about how the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, of sin, because they don't believe in Jesus. When someone is rejecting the Holy Spirit and his work, the spirit of grace, he goes, how much more? How much more judgment is upon that person? Listen, I would say this, don't reject the person of the Spirit. Don't reject his work in your life. His work is trying to bring you to Jesus and say, listen, you need Jesus. You're not going to find meaning and value and what you're made for until you find it in Jesus. The Spirit, I believe, is convicting me and you and the world of sin. And the sin is this, that you don't believe in Jesus. And so the person who blasphemes the Spirit rejects that is, is rejecting his work in that. That the Spirit is trying to bring us to Jesus. And you're saying, no, 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 I don't need Jesus. I can do whatever I want. I don't, need Je- I don't need a God to pay for my sin. I'm a pretty good person. I don't need Jesus. I have some other view to meet my issues and my needs. And, and here's the thing. When you reject Jesus, you reject the Spirit. When you reject the work of Jesus, you reject the work of the Spirit. That's the, that's the sin you don't want to commit. That, that takes place, I really believe, until your dying breath. Until your last breath, when you can't repent anymore. When there's no longer room for repentance because you're not alive. But I say, as long as there's breath in your lungs, repent. As long as there's breath in your lungs, turn to Jesus. Accept the work of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to bring you to Jesus. He's trying to bring the world to Jesus. Man, let's join the Holy Spirit in his mission to bring the world to Jesus. So here's the warning. There's a heavy warning. I'm going to keep going. We're going to look at number two, the reminder. And he says, but you. So notice the change again in language. Because I want us to get this. He's saying, but you, you're different. He's like, there's this big, there's a giant warning here, but you Jewish believers, you've lived differently. Notice verse 32. He says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Here is the reminder. Verse 32, he says, recall, recall the former days. Recall what it was like when you were first illuminated by the gospel. Recall the excitement. Recall how you were all in, how you gave up everything for Jesus because you knew he was worth it. He goes, how you, your, everything was taken from you, but you endured that joyfully. <clears throat> Listen to this. It's verse 33. It says, you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. Verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Guys, the early church lost, I almost want to say everything. I mean, if you study the early church and what they walked through, 
You study how in 64 AD, when there's fires all throughout Rome, and Caesar Nero said the Christians started the fire, and then this crazy persecution upon the Christians. And there was this insane, they had to literally go underground and meet in tombs to have church service. And you think about what they were walking through. I mean, there's different people like Josephus or Tacitus or Clement, different historians who write about the persecution Christians faced. And it was unreal. I mean, unreal. You can actually get a book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs and read from really this time all the way, I think, to like 1990 or 2000. They have some stories. But you can read just throughout 2,000 years of history what Christians have went through for following and believing in Jesus. It's, it's unreal. Listen to what Tacitus, Tacitus says, one historian. He says, uh, this is how he quotes about Christians' death. He says, their death was made a matter of sport. They were covered in wild beast skins and torn to pieces by dogs or fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches by night when daylight failed. He's saying when Christians were being persecuted, they treated it like a game, like a sport. It was like one giant game to Nero, to many of the leaders. They were dipped in like this wax or tar kind of matter and lit on fire and they were to keep people or like the courtyard lit at night in different areas. They were literally sewn into different animals, large animals and thrown into the Colosseum and lions would eat them. I mean, unreal, creative ways to persecute and harm Christians. And he says this to them. He says, you took it joyfully, man. When they reproached you, when you lost your home, your goods, when you lost your land, when you lost your possessions, you took it joyfully. You know, I don't know if we'll ever experience persecution to this level, maybe. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe Christians will get blamed for something. You can see all things spread fast these days. Maybe there'll be extreme persecution, physical persecution this way. I think what we face in our generation is, is a high level of social shaming. I think when you're a young Christian growing up through this Instagram world, it's hard, man. When you're reading like the different stories and how Christians were, you know, obviously we're, we're naive, we're intolerant, we're, you know, barbaric in our beliefs. And when you start reading this, it's almost like they're shaming you for your beliefs to the point where you're like, yeah, maybe this is. And then I just think for, for our world, for our generation, our approaches are a little different. It might not be with fists and with knuckles and with fire, but it, it's, it's worth, I think, just extreme comments that really do emotional damage, spiritual damage, that I think the enemy tries to use that to just develop like this, these thoughts. And I would say this, um, let's endure joyfully. Let's not fight back. I think sometimes in the church, we can try to fight comments with comments. Think of Jesus on the cross when he's like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think when I see these Facebook battles between even Christians, when I see these Facebook battles between Christians and non-Christians, I'm like, what value is that? You know, how are we being like Christ in that moment? I think, I really do believe if we'd say, Father, forgive them. What did Jesus do during those moments he prayed for them? And even prayer right now is being belittled where it's not time to pray. It's time for action. And, and I get that it is time for action, but it's time to pray. I mean, Jesus prayed for those who are persecuting him on the cross, spitting on him, mocking him, and he's praying, Father, forgive them. There is something about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, that our, our battle is not this me or you versus some other people group, that there's spiritual things that we do not see that are happening behind the scenes, that we're to engage this battle in a different way. He's saying, you guys endured this joyfully. Guys, and then you look at the early church, the way Christians respond to suffering and persecution changes the world. When we do it well, when we do it like Jesus, read 1 Peter chapter 2, when he says, when you do good, put them to shame. Put them to shame, not with your words, but with your actions, by doing good. When Christians respond biblically to persecution, to reproaches, to negative, negativity, comments, sarcasm, when we approach it differently, we approach it like Christ, that's where we see the power. It's not in let's fight fire with fire. It's realizing that Jesus took on all of that, that they are not the enemy, that they're a casualty of war, that Jesus loves them and died for them just like anyone else. And we'll approach them differently and fight this battle differently. And, and here's why I'm saying this. They, they obviously um, did this very well. He's commending them. He's going, don't trample the, the blood of Jesus. The adversaries, those who find the blood of Jesus, a common thing, they insult the spirit of grace, this work of grace, and they insult it by trying to still do it by their own efforts. Don't do that. He's like, you've actually, you've suffered well. Keep it up. Keep enduring this way. Keep walking through it this way. Listen, Jesus told us this would happen. I mean, I know we, we, we've probably heard this or know this, but let's just, I just want to remind you of this verse. It's John 16, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, in me, peace, man. 
In me, that's peace. In the world, tribulation. That's just what the world offers. In me, I offer peace. In the world, tribulation. But be of good cheer. I also overcame that. But be of good cheer. I've overcome that tribulation for you. So we've got to expect it and also be reali- realize that we're overcomers. I expect it, but I'm also an overcomer. He's like, you've overcome the world because I've overcome the world. So you've endured well. You, you've taken this. Let me remind you how you first responded when you heard the gospel. Man, you lost your possessions with this gladness of heart. Again, I don't know how I or we would take that if homes were being stripped away. Certain things are stripped away from the church because we're a church, which is possible. That could definitely be in our, in our lifetime where we lose certain benefits of being a church because we're not believing what the world believes. And it's saying, we'll, we'll take it joyfully. We'll endure joyfully the way they did. And, and listen, here's the point. In verse 34, the key is the ending of, of verse 34 to me. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Why? Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. How could they take this on? They knew they had a better possession in heaven. They had this mindset of, though I suffer now, uh, there's glory that awaits me. That as Peter writes about, and just so many authors say, before there's glory, there's always suffering. And though there's suffering now, there's glory that awaits me. There's this reward in heaven. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus like, don't store your treasures in, in earth. They'll just fall apart, they'll fade away, but lay them up in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as I invest into eternal things, my heart will be for eternal things. As I invest in heaven, my heart will be in heaven. As I invest into what matters, things that will carry on, my heart will be for those things. When you invest, guys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is just a true principle. If you're putting your treasure, your time, your energy, your money into a relationship, your heart's going to be in that relationship. If you put your time, your treasure, your money into your business, your heart's going to be for your business. Those are not bad things. Those are secondary things. Put your treasure in heaven. Invest your time, your energy, your money into heavenly things. There your heart will be. I think, guys, we're building a kingdom, not with hands. We're bringing God's kingdom to earth as as it is in heaven. And this will take time, energy, money. And as we do that, guess what? Your heart will be there also. You put your, your treasure there, that's where your heart's going to be. That's where your treasure's going to be. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So listen, he has this reminder, you did it well. Now here's kind of like this, number three, this encouragement, this promise. Uh, we're going to see now the encouragement in verse 36. Here's what he says. <clears throat> verse 36, number three, the encouragement. He says, you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we, listen, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Listen, here is the encouragement. Here's the promise. He says, you have need of endurance. Listen, I need endurance. You need endurance. We'll talk a lot about this more in Hebrews 12. But listen, the, the big theme of Hebrews is that you're suffering, you're suffering greatly, endure it. You've already endured, keep enduring. Church, right now, um, we need dads who, who will endure well. We need moms who will endure well. We need followers of Jesus who will endure well. There is a lost art of endurance. Um, we are in that microwave, we want immediate results generation. We're in the, I post it, I want likes. We're in the, I put it in the microwave, where's my food? We're just in that, I need it now. We're, we're crazy like that. We're like we, not, we can't wait. We're, we're really bad at waiting. And that also implies just we're bad at endurance. We're, we're bad at saying, I'm gonna be with this through thick and thin, through good times and bad times. We see it play out in marriages. We see it play out in businesses and friendships. We, play, we see it play out where you, we don't know what to do when we suffer. When we suffer, we run. When we suffer, we leave. And he's saying endure. This word, this word patience in, in Greek is hupomone. And it's really interesting. It actually means to remain and under. To remain and under. Patience means remain under. Patience means remain under what you're going through. Think about that. Patience. Remain under. It literally means you need to remain under what it is you're experiencing. My first inclination is not to remain under. My first inclination is this is painful. This is heavy. I don't like this. I'm out of here. That's my first desire. When you talked about, you know, issues in church, relationships, and people going, oh, this is so hard, I'm out of here. 
And the, the, we don't see that in scripture. We don't see that idea. Oh, let me just go find something else. I'll fit me. No, you see patience remain under. You see endurance. Stay with it. Stay with it. Do you want to develop this? This is hard. I leave. Keep developing that. Watch how it plays out with your kids, with your marriage, with your life. This is hard. I leave. That's not a really good formula for life. It's not this is hard. I leave. This is hard. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to remain under. I'm going to endure. And he talks about, uh, he quotes from Habakkuk, which is really interesting. Because the nation of Judah, he says, they didn't do the will of God. He goes, after you endure, he goes, you need, you need endurance. You need to do the will of God. Because there's people who didn't do the will of God. The, the nation, the tribe of Judah and, and that part of Israel. They didn't, re, they didn't really do the will of God. And then he, there's this quote in Habakkuk that is quoted three times in the New Testament. And it's going to set us up for next week and the, the rest of the series. Here's the quote. It's, it's in verse 20 or 37 sorry, verse 38, he says, the just shall live by faith. Now, please hear me on this. This is repeated three times in the New Testament. Uh, when a verse is quoted once in the New Testament, it's important. This is a vo- verse from the Old Testament quoted three times. So here it is, Romans 1.17, the righteous or just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, the righteous or just shall live by faith. Here in Hebrews 10, the righteous or just shall live by faith. Notice the way I bolded it. Like, look on your screen, check this out. When you read the book of Romans, it's focused on the first word, the righteous or the just. Read Romans, you'll see how it focuses on this theme of righteousness and just, justice or justness. Notice you'll fo- read Romans, you'll see it in that lens. Galatians talks about it from this idea of living. The righteous shall live, shall live by faith. Um, in Galatians 3 and throughout the whole book of Galatians, he says, if I'm going to live, I'm going to be alive to Christ. And there's this idea of living for Christ. And here in Hebrews, it's focused on that other phrase, by faith. So listen again, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous Romans shall live, Galatians, by faith, Hebrews. And this sets us up for Hebrews 11, where over and over again, you're gonna see that phrase now, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. I don't know if people get to Hebrews 11, they kind of skip over Hebrews 10, 38. And there's this beautiful setup for it, where he's saying, this is how we've always lived. Anyone under persecution, they lived by faith. Anyone who's ever followed Jesus well, they live by faith. He'll name Abraham and Rahab and Sarah. And he just goes through his list of they've lived by faith. Perfect? Of course not. Were they sinless? No way. But they lived by faith, by faith, by faith. And so he's ending with saying, have faith that endures. And we're gonna look at a lot of examples now that lived by faith, that endured well. They blew it, they made mistakes along the way, but they lived by faith. Church, please hear me, live by faith. We're not just saved by faith. Yes, we are. We're not just saved by faith though. We also live by faith. We're saved by faith, but we continue to live out faith. Warren Wearsby said it this way, we're not just saved from our sin by faith, we also must live by faith. We're not just saved from our sin by faith. We must also live by faith. And I cannot wait to get to Hebrews 11 because church, I think what's lacking in my life and much of the church's life is we, we serve a really big God. And I want to believe God again, the way our forefathers and foremothers live before us. I want to be included in that hall of faith where we go, I'm going to live by faith. Am I going to do it flawlessly? No, of course not. But I want to be marked by faith. I want to live by faith. God's economy is this, by faith. How do things get done in, in, in God's economy? By faith. I, I don't fully get it. Our economy is a little bit different than God's economy. Our economy is, do you work? And here's your, you know, God's economy is by faith. Some things you might not always work for. Some things you might work hard. Either way, it's by faith. And I cannot wait to get to Hebrews 11 with you guys. We talk about by faith. Verse 39, by the way, just summarizes this. It says, we are not of those who draw back. We're not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This idea is we believe in an ongoing, we're believing. We're constantly believing. It's not, I once believed in Jesus 25 years ago and I went forward. It's, I'm believing to this moment, to this day, to the saving of the soul. Belief is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. So let belief rule and reign. Your belief in Jesus, that you live and walk by faith, and let's have an enduring faith. There's a warning here. There's a reminder of how they did it well. And there's this encouragement to keep on enduring, keep on pressing in, keep on living by faith. And church, let's take it all in right now. If you need to be warned, you need to take that warning very serious. I don't want to downplay it. If there's been sin in your life where like right now you've been running from God, running from God, running from God, you've been arrogant about your sin, I can do whatever I want because I'm already saved by grace through faith. And so you, maybe there's this arrogance. Right now you need to repent. Right now you need to say, God, I've been really arrogant and boasting in the wrong things. 
Or God, my lifestyle has been denying you and I don't want to deny you anymore. And for some, you might need to truly repent. For others, you need to be encouraged by this truth that even when you're faithless, he's faithful. He cannot deny himself. And for all of us, listen, we need to endure. For all of us, we need endurance by faith, by faith, by faith. Listen, my hope is now in groups, whether today or throughout the week, that you'd have a conversation around this, that you'd encourage each other, that you would stir each other on to loving good works, that there'd be a sense where we are a people of faith, that when something sounds really crazy and audacious, we're not the first to despise prophecies, but we'd be those who embrace it and say, let's walk by faith. And I'm praying that God makes us a community of faith and less maybe... Um, where we can err on just trying to be theological and having the right answers for the right things and a people that walk with the spirit, a people that live by faith, that yes, we have good theology, but it's, ma- it's also maxed or matched with good doxology and good lifestyle and good habits and that we're a people who carries that out. That we would not just believe the right things, we would live out the right things. That we'd be a people of faith, amen? Really quick, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna have a couple of, of slides to kind of have some questions for you to answer and I have a couple quick announcements too, so let me just pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chance we get to study a passage that is incredibly difficult, but Lord, we also want to hear and receive what it is you have for us. So God, we just, um, we pray what it is you want to accomplish in my life, in our lives, that you would do that. That Jesus, we would not insult the spirit of grace. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your spirit who is with us and will dwell in us and come upon us. And Lord, we just receive that. We thank you for him. We thank you for the work of the Spirit. And God, we just ask that we would no longer go back to the former things. They would not boast in anything other than you, Jesus, and what you've done. And Lord, I ask that you'd give our people, give myself endurance. We don't want to just run this little sprint well, but we want to run that race of faith well, Jesus. We look to you, the author and finisher. We just want to praise you now. We ask that you'd speak and move, even in groups. That even as we say amen, church is not done in that sense, that we're still that community following you, that we still need you every moment. And so God, we just ask that you go before us in your wonderful name. Amen. A couple quick things I want to share with you guys. Don't forget, communion is next week. So grab your your bread, your wine, your juice, whatever. We just want you to have some stuff ready for communion next week. Um, That is first and foremost. Um, Also, next week, we're beginning our new series, Faith That Changes the World. So we're going to be in Hebrews 11, unpacking this more. So excited for this. Also, just want to encourage you, if this is your home church, we'd ask that you pray about what giving looks like and how you can be a part of of really just investing in eternal things, heavenly things. Um, As we're praying about what's next for our church, Sunday gatherings, different space for us to be meeting in, we just ask that you pray about what that looks like. Listen, we're going to put some questions up for you right now. If you would, just uh, take a second, screenshot, take a picture of those questions. We'd love for you to discuss with your husband or wife or text a friend or call a friend right now or join a Zoom group, go online and hit hit digital groups and you'll be able to find on our website a group even happening today, a couple groups today. Uh, But that is it. We love you guys. Have a great Sunday. We'll hopefully see you in groups. And that's it. God bless you guys.